Looking back on the week that was with a razor wit, irreverent humour and profound political and cultural insights, this is The James McPherson Show. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has insisted that nobody made the decision to hire private security guards used in the state's quarantine hotels. In his appearance last Friday afternoon at the inquiry into the government's bungled quarantine system, Mr Andrews insisted that everybody knew nobody was responsible. It was definitely nobody's fault. Everybody knew that, he said. Ask anybody. His testimony appeared to contradict evidence from everybody to the inquiry that somebody in the Premier's office made the decision that led to Melbourne's deadly coronavirus second wave. Mr Andrews showed the inquiry a text message from somebody in his office asking everybody if anybody knew how the quarantine would be enforced. Nobody replied to the text because nobody knew, he said. This proves that nobody was to blame. Counsel assisting the inquiry, Rachel Elliard, told Mr Andrews, it's hard to believe that nobody could have known what was going on. Somebody must have made the decision to use security guards rather than police or armed personnel. Mr Andrews replied, I realise everybody wants to point the finger at somebody in my office, but it was anybody's guess how these operational decisions were made. And the fact is, nobody knew. Ms. Elyard pressed the matter, insisting anybody would assume somebody from your staff must have signed off on the decision. A clearly, mis- a clearly agitated Mr. Andrews told her, anybody can make allegations against somebody, but nobody wins when that happens. I think it's fair to say that everybody assumed somebody made the decision to employ private security contractors. I don't think that's anybody's fault. Nobody can be blamed for that. Huh? <laughs> Sorry. Ms. Elyard put it to the Premier that hotel quarantine was entirely too important to be left to private contractors. Given what's at stake, given the seriousness of the virus, Ms. Elyard, I think everybody could agree that's a fair assessment. Yes, Mr. Andrews said, anybody could see that. Ms. Elyard then asked the Premier if he could explain how it all went so wrong. I know everybody believes somebody should be held accountable, he said. The simple fact is that everybody thought somebody would take responsibility and anybody could have, but nobody did. Ms. Elliott asked, are you saying nobody is responsible for this whole fiasco? That's exactly what I'm saying, Mr. Andrews said. I'm not nobody. I'm the Premier. And like everybody, I find these mistakes unacceptable. I'm somebody who is as sorry as anybody about this. I want to say to you, Madam Chair, I await your final report so we can better understand what I have just said and so as leader of the government, I can take appropriate action against nobody. Well, welcome to the James MacPherson Show. Great to have your company on this Tuesday, September 29, 2020. Hey, listen, if you're a Victorian who has never tried illegal drugs, now might be a good time to start. I don't recommend it, but I'm just saying financially, this might not be a bad time to experiment with illegal drugs. Get caught in Melbourne with up to 50 grams of cannabis And a magistrate, if he's in a bad mood, might fine you as much as $826. Get caught breaching stay-at-home orders in order to have a cup of tea with a friend overlooking the beaches of the Mornington Peninsula, and you'll cop an on-the-spot $4,957 fine. Have your significant other join you, and the penalty is $9,914. Tea kills. Just say no. 
Rugby Australia sacked their star player and trashed their brand to keep a sponsor happy. Now they have no star, no brand, and no sponsor. Go woke, go broke. Qantas last week announced it would end its partnership with Rugby Australia, a year after it demanded the code ditch its best player for his views on homosexuality. What fools the ARU who bent over to keep the airline's pink sponsorship dollar alienating fans who wanted to watch rugby rather than receive a lecture on LGBTQI diversity. Qantas had pressured the ARU to deal with Israel Folau after he posted on social media that homosexuals would go to hell unless they sought forgiveness from Jesus. Suddenly, a footballer's opinion about the afterlife created more outrage than the fact that Australia hadn't won a Rugby World Cup in 20 years. The then CEO of Rugby Australia, Raylene Castle, said that Falau's religious belief about eternal judgment had been, and I quote, the singly most difficult thing, end quote, she'd ever had to deal with. Never mind that rugby, unlike the AFL, had no free-to-air television deal. Forget that New Zealand rugby had asked the ARU to reduce the number of Australian super rugby teams because they were worried about the poor standard of our players. The greatest challenge to rugby union in this country was apparently a fullback's musings on eternal damnation. Sponsors complained that their commitment to diversity and tolerance meant they could not tolerate Falau's divergent view. They would celebrate diversity by using their sponsorship to enforce conformity. They insisted that rugby must prove it was all about inclusion. And how better to celebrate inclusion than by excluding your best player because of his views on what happens when you die. So Rugby Australia acted at the behest of sponsors to rid themselves of their best player in what became a publicity and legal nightmare, costing the code millions in lawyers' fees and many more millions in a settlement with Falau. The loss of its star fullback did not help the Wallabies bid to attract a TV deal, nor did it help them to progress beyond the quarterfinals of the 2019 World Cup. The fallout ultimately saw coach Michael Chica resign, then CEO Raylene Castle resigned, and now key sponsor Qantas has flown the coop. The moral of the story? Don't waste time pandering to fickle, woke organisations that care more about a footballer's view on the afterlife than a footballer's ability to, you know, run and kick and tackle and pass. Not only will you lose your fan base, you'll lose your woke sponsor the moment the wind changes. Qantas chief customer official Stephanie Tully said the COVID-19 pandemic meant the airline could no longer afford to support Australian rugby. Like all Australians, we'll continue to cheer them on from the sidelines, she said. News of Qantas's departure led some to wonder if Israel Folau might return to the Wallabies team. But even if he wanted to, the code can no longer afford him. And so Rugby Australia's humiliation is complete. Netball Australia decided to hold an Indigenous round last weekend to celebrate diversity and inclusion. What could possibly go wrong? Games were opened with an acknowledgement of country. A didgeridoo was played before the start of each game. Match balls featured Indigenous artwork, as did player uniforms. So far, so woke. There was even one Indigenous player. The problem was that she sat on the bench for the entire game. And faster than you can say cultural awareness, a weekend designed to show off the sport's woke credentials became prima facie evidence of the sport's systemic racism. Social media cried foul. Netball Australia were racist trash. The much-publicised Indigenous round was a debacle and a kick in the guts to the Indigenous community. 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders had been disrespected. Besieged Queensland Firebirds coach Rosalie Jenke issued a public apology, explaining that her decision to keep Indigenous wing attack Gemma Mimi on the bench was one of strategy, not of bigotry. She had naively approached her team's super netball game against minor premiers Melbourne like any other, with a view to win, and win they did. But this wasn't a game like any other. This was Indigenous round. And during Indigenous round, you play the Indigenous woman whether she helps you win the game or not. The decision not to put Gemma on the court was the right one from a game strategy perspective, Jenke said. However, we misread community expectations. Jenke had been under pressure to get results after her team finished bottom of the table in 2019, so she was coaching to win. Netball Australia had been under pressure to get results after more than 20 years without an Indigenous player in the national team, so they were playing to signal inclusion. Caught between the coach's desire to win and the code's desire to send a culturally appropriate message was Gemma. She was playing to establish herself as an elite netballer. Like I said, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, apart from the public humiliation of Gemma and vicious accusations of racism against her coach and teammates. Sharon Finnan White, the last Indigenous netballer to play for Australia, told the ABC, and I quote, There needed to be a bit more cultural sensitivity around the fact that Indigenous round is really special for our people and Gemma should have been able to be part of that win. She should have had a chance to hit the court. They can't make finals. They weren't even in contention. What was supposed to be a wonderful celebration of our culture, her culture, turned into something completely sour, end quote. Unintentionally, those comments highlighted the hypocrisy of both Netball Australia and of Indigenous sporting activists. Netball Australia can hardly use their sole Indigenous player to promote Indigenous round, only to then have her sit on the sidelines watching all the non-Indigenous people play. Netball Australia set Gemma up to look like a fool. But by the same token, and I use the word token deliberately, Indigenous activists can hardly demand respect while insisting that one of theirs gets court time at the elite level because skin colour and because, you know, the team wasn't going to make the finals anyway. Ignoring form and tactics in order to give an Indigenous netball or a few minutes of token game time is hardly a way to generate respect for our Indigenous players. One Indigenous journalist wrote, and I quote, an Indigenous round without Indigenous players on the court isn't an Indigenous round, it's tokenism. She's right. But it's equally true that putting Indigenous players on the court because it's Indigenous round is also tokenism. The player, Gemma, told media prior to the Sunday's game, I've never played a netball game in an Indigenous dress before, so it's going to be really exciting to step out on the court at a home game to represent both the Firebirds and the Indigenous community. Well, when game time came, the 24-year-old was all dressed up with nowhere to go. And it wasn't her fault. She was put in that position by virtue-signalling sports administrators and by race-obsessed activists who were as bad as each other. And what of Gemma's teammates? Shamefully, they were publicly accused of racism for not subbing themselves out of the game so that Gemma could get on the court. Aboriginal scholar and Western Sydney University lecturer Robin Oxley told the SBS, and I quote, It really questions why white players do not remove themselves, even when they are cramping. These players would rather risk further injury than see an Indigenous person play in a round dedicated to promoting awareness of Indigenous culture, end quote. 
One has to wonder if Robin Oxley watches any sport. Players want to play and are loath to sub themselves off, cramp or not. And if a white player had taken herself off to get Gemma on the court, it's probable that the goal attack would have been called a bigot for not swapping positions so that Gemma could score all the goals. Super Netball CEO Chris Symington responded to the controversy by saying he understood calls for the Indigenous round to be scrapped. But then, reverting to robotic woke speak, he said, and I quote, Indigenous Round provides an opportunity to celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and acknowledge the contribution that many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders play across the entire netball system, and we plan for this round to continue in future years, end quote. Well, the reaction to last weekend made one thing certain. Indigenous Round is not a celebration of elite sport or of elite athletes. If you want to see that, Save your money for the following week when social justice warriors are sidelined to create a safe space for professional coaches and athletes playing to win. For something made in China, coronavirus is surprisingly good. How else to make sense of the latest nonsensical restrictions aimed at stopping the spread of the disease in Victoria, except that COVID-19 is the world's first smart virus? Hmm? Premier Daniel Andrews and his quarantine of experts announced this week that it was safe for Victorians to get their gardens landscaped, but not safe for them to worship at church. Communist China has managed to produce a disease that has it in for Christians, but allows you to work on backyard feng shui. Go figure. The virus is amazingly specific in its prejudices. It has no interest in swimmers doing laps at a public pool, but it apparently lurks on fairways, lying in wait for unsuspecting golfers who spread it with their swing. That the ban on golf particularly upsets golf-loving government critic Sam Newman just goes to show what a politically cunning devil this virus is. And as of Monday, the virus would no longer be attacking anyone between the hours of 9pm and 5am, allowing Daniel Andrews to remove the curfew just hours before its legality was challenged in court. Not bad for a virus made in China. If you march for Black Lives Matter, coronavirus couldn't care less. If you march for freedom, coronavirus will spread in less time than it takes police to cuff a pregnant woman in her pyjamas. If you meet with four of your friends from another household in a public place, the virus will turn a blind eye. But if you're foolish enough to meet with those exact same friends in your backyard, the virus is suddenly aroused with lethal fury. If one of those friends from the other household is a personal trainer and you start exercising as a group, the virus will surely find out and the virus will kill you. But if you send two of those friends away, the virus will be placated and will allow you to continue with your fitness session without striking you down. Understand, though, that if for any reason you exercise more than five kilometres from your home or for more than two hours, well, then all bets are off. The virus doesn't go to public playgrounds. It used to, but it doesn't anymore. It still loiters at skate parks, though. COVID-19 will try to infect you if you inspect a display home, but for reasons unknown, it will give you a 15-minute head start which explains why under Victoria's COVID-19 lockdown laws, you're permitted to inspect the home for 15 minutes, but not for 16 minutes. The Chinese smart virus not only tells time, it can differentiate between animal grooming, which it has no problem with, and human grooming, which it does not like. It can also tell the difference between government workers and private contractors, though this is hardly a boast since even children know that the government workers are the ones standing around idle. (laughs) 
<laughs> weirdly, COVID-19 knows to leave union-controlled construction sites alone. It also knows the date. Coronavirus has no argument with you visiting the grave site of a departed loved one to mark a birthday or anniversary, but COVID has access to your calendar, see? If you visit that same grave site on a date that does not coincide with a key milestone, it knows and it's not happy. Clever virus. Stupid premier. Criminals have been busy committing crimes while Victorian police have been busy keeping people who have committed no crime locked up in their homes. Deputy Police Commissioner Rick Nugent last week revealed that crime in Dan Andrews' police state was up significantly on the previous 12 months. He said there were on average 46 criminal incidents every hour over the past year. It's a lot of incidents, he told 3AW's Neil Mitchell. Aggravated burglaries were up a staggering 23% for the year ending June 2020. Of course, this is hardly a shock given that police resources have been focused on arresting ordinary citizens who want to live free. And is it any wonder that crime rates are rising when police spend most of their time ensuring that everyone has their identity concealed with a mask? Deputy Commissioner Nugent said that youth crime was up almost 9%. He said that more than half of all robberies in Victoria had been committed by kids aged 10 to 17. Well, that's what happens when you close schools. But the revelation should have every Victorian wondering if police can't control kids when they are quarantined at home and subject to an 8pm curfew, what hope when things return to normal? Nevertheless, it was surprising to hear the Deputy Commissioner talking about youth crime rather than boasting about Victoria Police's very public and heroic successes against recalcitrant grannies and outspoken pregnant women. Youth crime might be up, but Facebook posts that dictated Dan doesn't like appear to be down. And old ladies are no longer resting on park benches, so well done, Victoria Police. Deputy Commissioner Nugent said police had identified 42 gangs responsible for car theft, home invasions and assault. He said tackling them would be a priority, right after police had finished limiting the spread of the virus. Quote, yesterday saw 20 fines for gatherings, end quote. Not a reference to gangs gathering to commit crimes, but in reference to law-abiding citizens gathering to, you know, talk. He said, and I quote, nice weather, people start partying again. You do get these kind of trends. Like, seriously, how many people have to lose their lives? We've just got to get on top of this virus. And then the next most important thing for me is getting this gang strategy right, end quote. Did you get that? First priority, stop ordinary Victorians from partying. And then once you've stopped law-abiding citizens from having parties, then police will get around to figuring out a strategy to deal with criminal gangs. Well, here's a suggestion. One strategy could be zero-tolerance policy enforced by overwhelming numbers of police in riot gear. It does seem to have worked against law-abiding citizens. The Democrats, in opposing the nomination of a new Supreme Court judge until after the November 3 election, want to turn the United States Senate into the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Democrats are united in fighting to honour Ruth Bader Ginsburg's last wish, tweeted Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer. Joe Biden's running mate, Camilla Harris, said, we must honour that wish and fight for her legacy. Elizabeth Warren spelt it out when she said, with voting already underway for the 2020 elections, Ruthie's most fervent wish was for her replacement not to be named until a new president is installed. We must honour her wish. 
Well, sure. And Abraham Lincoln's deathbed wish was for the Senate to confirm Amy Coney Barrett as a Supreme Court justice. Several anonymous sources have confirmed it. And I read somewhere that George Washington's last words were, build that wall. Oh, really? But unfortunately, there is no most fervent wish clause in the United States Constitution. The death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, aged 87, sent the Democrats into a terrible panic. President Trump now has the opportunity to nominate, and he has, a pro-life judge to replace the pro-abortion left-lurching Ginsburg. This would tilt the court's balance 6-3 in favour of conservative judges. If they even try to replace RBG, we burn the entire effing thing down, tweeted left-wing writer Reza Aslan. Aslan also claims to be a scholar of religions, having converted from Islam to Christianity and back to Islam again. It seems that in all that chopping and changing, he missed the love your enemies part. But I digress. Another leftist with more than 15,000 followers tweeted, F you, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. F you for not retiring under Obama. F you for not dying under, F you for dying under Trump. F you, F you. And I could quote the reaction of other prominent leftists to RBG's death, but you get the idea. Once the temper tantrum was exhausted and the leftist tears had dried, the Democrats had to find an argument as to why Donald Trump should not be allowed to nominate a replacement, as the Constitution empowers him to do. Unable to find any reason in law, a common but never insurmountable problem for the left, progressives did what they always do. They urged people to think with their feelings and to reason with their emotions. After all, who would not be deeply moved by an NPR story telling how just days before her death, as her strength waned, Ginsburg dictated this statement to her granddaughter, Clara Sperra. My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. The revelation was followed by a parade of caring, compassionate Democrats solemnly insisting that the only decent thing, the only humane thing to do was to honour Ginsburg's dying wish. Actor Kamal Nanjiana said, no matter where we go from here, this is a remarkably selfless statement to make on your deathbed. Nanjiana, who would be better advised to sticking to reading a script rather than writing his own material, did not say whether Ginsburg's remarkably selfless wish would have been the same had Obama been president nor did he explain how using one's dying breath to engage in political plotting rather than to farewell family was remarkably selfless. But don't think, only feel. Author and feminist activist Gloria Steinem wrote, we can each honour Ruth Bader Ginsburg by asking ourselves, what would Ruth do? Don't think what Ruth would do, feel it. The danger of thoughts is that you might recall that Ruth, when asked just three months before the 2016 election, if the Senate had an obligation to consider Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court to replace the deceased Antonin Scalia, she told the New York Times, that's their job. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being the president in his last year. But who wants to believe verified quotes advocating the law? when you can instead choose to believe dramatic last gasp words and wishes based on hearsay. Remember, truth is felt when you're a Democrat. The founding fathers had wishes. They wrote them down. We call it the Constitution. And the Constitution of the United States doesn't play second fiddle to Ruth Ginsburg's last wish because the Supreme Court seat didn't belong to her. 
But if you practice feeling rather than thinking, you can so cloud your judgment that it's possible to imagine Trump is a dictator for wanting to do what the Constitution says, while a Supreme Court justice is supreme leader who gets to decide who replaces her. In a bid to safeguard abortion, the Democrats would taint the legacy of a revered Supreme Court justice by propagating a story that the judge's dying wish was for people to ignore the Constitution. Let that sink in. And if we want to talk about dying wishes, we might consider that every aborted child's dying wish is for the Supreme Court of the United States to stop facilitating their painful, gruesome murders. Meanwhile, given Joe Biden's condition, voters have a right to know his most fervent wish and which grandchild he has dictated it to, since that is now the basis by which Democrats want to govern. you've enjoyed this episode of the James McPherson Show. Look out for it again next Tuesday when we've got a fresh edition. In the meantime, tonight on goodsource.news, don't miss Dave Pellow's show where he'll be interviewing conservative voices, politicians, cultural commentators on all the issues taking place around the country and in the United States this week. Until next Tuesday, I look forward to your company on the James McPherson Show. The Good Source is amplifying leading conservative voices from Australia and New Zealand. Together, we're providing viewers and listeners, as well as readers, diverse formats and a better source of news and opinions without the constant victim-oppressor, social justice warrior rhetoric or PC fear of reality. You can help us grow this important initiative by becoming a supporter at goodsource.news today. The James McPherson Show is a production of The Good Source, written and presented by James McPherson. To watch, listen to, or read more media without the SJW narratives or PC fact filter, visit goodsource.news. That's good, S-A-U-C-E.news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show. 